Okay. Welcome back. I want to start with a quick framework for the metta practice, where this belongs in Buddhism. Um, so metta, and I, I said this at the very beginning, but those of you who came in uh, during the meditation, uh, metta is a Pali word that is often translated as loving kindness. Uh, it is a quality in the mind and heart. And in Buddhism, we don't make such distinctions, the mind, heart. Uh, it's a quality that we can cultivate, we can strengthen within ourselves. Um, it's not exactly love the way that we talk about love. Um, there is a kindness to it, a friendliness the sense of care, metta is warm. Um, when we cultivate metta, we often do it by practicing this warm, uh, caring regard for someone's well-being or for our own well-being, and then ultimately for all beings everywhere. It's part of the Brahma Viharas. This is another Poly word or poly phrase. So the divine abodes of the heart. These are a set of heart qualities. Uh, and metta is just one of them. So there's four. It's loving kindness. And then, and you can think of loving kindness, the way I orient to it is this uh, kind of a baseline of the open heart, open mind. Oh, it's it's um, a natural quality when our mind isn't cluttered with all the other stuff <laughs> that doesn't feel very meta-like. So when we are confused, when we are stuck in that aversive, um, hateful mind, when we are um, in that greedy mind, doubtful mind, feel fearful mind, all of this gets in the way of metta. When all of that, when that isn't there, this, is, this natural inclination of the mind is towards metta. It's whatever arises that we can meet it with these qualities. And then we have uh, compassion or karuna, when we experience or witness uh, suffering, our own suffering or the suffering of others, uh, that metta turns into compassion. This very naturally flows into uh, that concern and care for someone's suffering. And then in the same way, this empathetic response towards somebody's joy, when we see somebody happy, uh, when we see someone has um, accomplished something and they're feeling really good about it, they're excited about it, um, they're, they're all lit up. We can share in that 
that experience, that joy for someone else's joy, sympathetic joy or mudita. And then the fourth Brahma Vihara is equanimity. And we don't always think of equanimity as a heart quality. Equanimity sometimes, and this is very cultural, um, this might be uh, some of us uh, uh, in our Western culture associating um, equanimity as kind of a, a cold indifference. And in Buddhism, that's not true. Equanimity is warm. It's very connected. It's seeing the larger picture. It's holding everything in a larger context, but it is a quality of an open heart. And equanimity keeps the other qualities in balance so that we don't uh, kind of tip into overwhelm uh, with compassion uh, or we don't tip into pity uh, with compassion or exuberance with, with sympathetic joy, that the joy gets so big that that energetic quality kind of overtakes whoever and whatever else is there. So it keeps everything in check. So these are the Brahma Viharas and metta is just one of these heart qualities. And so some of you tonight, as you were bringing this metta to whatever was arising, you may have noticed that it turned more towards this feeling of compassion or joy or equanimity. And that's very natural. This is how the Brahma Viharas move within us. Uh, we might be cultivating one, but find ourselves actually experiencing another. And that's just very natural. So I, I have been enjoying this practice of bringing uh, metta and mindfulness together. I don't, I think, you know, we, we, we can practice them separately and cultivate them separately, strengthen them separately, but in the end, they really come together. They're different. They're not the same qualities. One is a real faculty of the mind, this ability to be mindful. And the other is this quality in the mind and attitude in the mind. Um, but when they are mature, you find them often together or some, one of these Brahma Viharas often arising with our mindfulness. They don't have to go together, but I find they often do. And so to purposely, uh, and have that intention to bring in metta while doing, uh, our mindfulness practice, I find that very powerful and opens, um, I know it's opened me up quite a bit. Uh, I've been practicing for a while and sometimes that mindfulness practice, it gets a bit dry. <laughs> um, it's hard to stay connected, uh, just kind of going through the paces of practice sometimes. And there's something about the heart qualities that when it's coupled with mindfulness or some of these other wisdom practices, uh, it gives some sense of, of connection and, and life to, to what I'm doing. So I hope that you had that experience or some, touched upon something similar in our practice. So we can use um, this metta with our mindfulness practice to transform our mind state 
We might be noticing uh, an agitation of some kind, some difficult mind state that we're stuck in. And we can bring in these qualities of metta to help uh, transform that mind state, to soothe it, um, to incline towards something different. There can be a lot of wisdom in that in the way that we, we hold these two together, the, the way these two work together, metta and mindfulness. But it's also a way for us to just be with what's uncomfortable. Sometimes uh, in our practice, we find that we can't just change these mind states to whatever we want. We don't always get our preferences. That's part of all of it, isn't it? learning how to be with the discomfort, learning how to be with what's unpleasant. And so oftentimes we find that we can be with the unpleasant and the challenging. And then other times we find that it's exhausting, it's disheartening, it's, uh, it's not motivating to stay with it. And so these qualities of, of metta, this, this care that we can bring in, or maybe it becomes compassion in this case, it helps us stay with that difficulty. It brings this other element in that helps us focus and feel like we have the capacity to be with what's here without having to change it or manipulate it in some way but to be with the raw experience of what's present. I remember sitting a retreat at Spirit Rock. It was one of the long retreats, maybe the month long or two month. And I was sitting with this incredible rage. There was all this anger that was coming up. That was not why I went to this retreat. <laughs> I was not expecting a rage retreat, but that was what I was having. And so not only was I having this really intense anger, but I was also really upset that this is what was happening with this retreat. I was spending this time, I felt like I was wasting my time uh, in this state of just intense contraction. And it had, there was a story behind it. There was something in particular. There was a relationship that I was trying to work through, a friendship that had kind of gone bad. And so all of this thinking and memory and emotion. It was all just bubbling right up to the surface. So after days of being mindful of it, uh, I think a teacher suggested I bring in some metta. And metta classically is an antidote to aversion and um, hatred. Can be an antidote to anger. So I thought, okay, that's great. And so I put all my effort into that, bringing in the phrases, uh, directing it to myself, directing it to you know, the people that were coming to mind. Um, and I just found myself in more and more contraction. It wasn't really working. And at some point I was sitting in, a, in a, um, one of the meditations and just imagining lobbing these meta bombs at my, my anger, just may you be happy. 
may you feel safe, just, you know, throwing everything that I had. And of course, what was really happening, it wasn't Metta, it was this intense, aversive mind trying to get rid of, push away my aversion. So I was just on this really intense loop, this mental loop, calling it Metta. (laughs) So of course it didn't work. And at some point uh, I saw it at some point, really what happened was I just exhausted myself and I just felt like I couldn't do, do this anymore and got to that place that, um, you know, that I think many practitioners get to on long retreats where you, when you're going through it, you just feel like I can't do another hour of this. So I remember being that place. And sometimes that's a great place to end up when we exhaust our neuroses or exhaust our mind with whatever it is that we're doing. Sometimes right in that moment, there's this place to let go into what's happening. There's just, you can't fight it anymore. And so that means you have to be with it. So I remember sitting there and just, oh, okay. It's anger. I'll be with my anger. And I remember the anger rising and it just felt so big and consuming like a fire, like I was sitting in the middle of a fire and, and I didn't, you know, it didn't kill me. It didn't, you know, annihilate me. Um, but it was very intense. And I just remember as I was sitting there, instead of trying to push it away with this, this fake meta, these meta bombs, there was something else that came in that was very um, caring. And it, it felt like uh, almost like wrapping its arms around this anger and bringing it in instead of pushing it away. Like this too gets to be practice. This too is part of my experience. And it was this metta, it was this compassion that just came out, it felt very spontaneous, but it probably came from years of practicing metta and compassion. And then suddenly it just stepped in. And so it got me thinking about my approach to all these difficult mind states and difficult experiences. Maybe I'm approaching it incorrectly. Maybe I'm applying this aversion to my aversion and that's not getting me anywhere. What would it be like to actually fold all of these parts of myself, all of these experiences into practice? What would it be like to actually be with what's here, not trying to fix it all the time, not trying to make it what I think it should be? That was a real turning point in my practice. And even today in the sit, (laughs) you know, this still comes up. During our sit, my my computer, um, the fan started going off. I think it's, I've got so much plugged into this computer (laughs) right now. I've got an external mic and the camera and this, 
you know, special light and all this stuff. And I think I'm, I'm overloading it or something. And so the fan comes, comes on right in the middle of our meditation. And I'm, you know, chatting with the, the, uh, audio video guy on here. Thank you, Jesse. <laughs> Is this, can you actually hear it? And I guess you can't, but I could. And I could feel just the contraction as I'm trying to offer this meta practice uh, within my own body and my own mind of just like, I hate this. Why is this happening? Why is this on here? You know, what's going on with my computer? And, um, you know, so that, that habit of aversion, it's right there. It doesn't take much. But I also can meet it in a different way. Okay, this is what's happening. Yeah, okay, they might be able to hear it. Everyone looks okay. You know, I took a peek and you all look just fine. Everything's really just fine. Is there a way to relax into the discomfort? Is there a way to be with even this loud noise being known? contraction in the body, being known, folding it all in. I hold this with care. I hold this with ease. May we all be well. It's so counterintuitive. It sounds so sweet when I say it, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's so counterintuitive because of course, Our knee-jerk reaction is the opposite. We want to get rid of it, the things that are uncomfortable, the things that we would rather be going a different way. So we can use these qualities of metta to stay with whatever is here, to actually be here with the fullness of life, whatever that means in that moment. We can use it to transform our mental state into something different. It doesn't take much sometimes. It's kind of amazing. When we do remember to bring in these qualities, sometimes it's like a switch. Just, oh yeah, I have this option. It doesn't always work that way, but sometimes it does. And it's a great example. It's, it's great to remember that sometimes that's all it takes. It's just, oh yeah, this is also an option that yes, there's the contracted mind, but then in comes something else, something that's more open and allowing and available to what's here that can hold that contraction, something that's bigger than that part of me that's like this. It's very powerful. So these emotions and sound and uh, these internal experiences, that's one thing. But then what about these big outer experiences? How do we hold them with this open heart? We've all been going through this last two years. I almost don't even wanna bring it up. Because I know I'm sick of talking about it, and I'm sure that 
you know, we're all kind of sick of it, of, of talking about it and dealing with it. And, um, you know, we've all been listening to Dharma talks with how are we coping with COVID? But it's true, we've been going through this collective experience of some form of suffering. It's different for everyone, but the amount of collective loss in this last two years, and we're all ready to move on. Or, you know, I love that, let's get back to, get back to normal. But there's no going back. None of us have come through this to land back where we were two years ago. Everything has changed. Our world has changed. Who we are has changed. There's really no going back. You know, we've all been also following the unfolding of what's happening in Ukraine. Oh, this is another tragedy that we're, we're witnessing, some of us very closely affected and others, it feels far away and yet can feel just our connectedness, how something happening on the other side of the world uh, that we're not separate from it. How do we hold this with this open heart? And the truth is, you know, as we're witnessing it, our heart is breaking. It's heartbreaking. So much of what we've been witnessing, not just in the last two years, uh, but certainly there's been so much in the last two years and our heart breaks. And we think, oh, I can't take one more, you know, bad news. I can't take one more headline, one more, you know, Facebook feed of, or Twitter feed of something that's going to be upsetting. That feeling like our capacity is, is so low to take on one more bit of suffering. And I wonder how many of you've noticed that almost like we're bracing what, what next could possibly happen? So witnessing what's happening in Ukraine and it's true, the heart just breaks. But I've been thinking a lot of, um, of uh, this activist and writer, Andrew Harvey, who poses this question of what if your heart is meant to break? What if our hearts are meant to break? He says that if you're listening, if you're awake to the poignant beauty of the world, your heart breaks regularly. Your heart is made to break. Its purpose is to burst open again and again so that it can hold ever more wonders. That our heart is meant to break. And that goes against everything within our instincts, right? 
we want to protect ourselves from heartbreak, from experiencing that kind of suffering. When we feel our heartbreak, the alarm bells go off. You know, there's something wrong. Something isn't right. This hurts. This hurts too much. I can't really be with this. It's too painful. Everything inside of us starts to say, you know, okay, we got to get away from this. We've got to shut down, put up our protection, you know, close off, distract ourselves. Sometimes it's like that, get numb. Sometimes it's, it looks more like an obsessive interest in what's going on. You know, like you can't get enough uh, news and you can't get enough uh, of recent headlines. Hi, buddy. This is my five-year-old. <laughs> you have to go to bed. Here, can I hear? Why? Me? Who let me in? <laughs> a little bit. Oh, you got your dose of Leo. <laughs> but it's true, you know, our heart, um, it breaks. Sometimes it goes into that numbness. Sometimes it goes into this, you know, like we have to read everything about it. We're up late at night and we can't get enough uh, we're Googling, you know, what's going on, what's happening right now in Ukraine or Googling, you know, what's going on with police violence or, you know, whatever it is. And um, not because we need any more information, but because we just need to feed that part of us that um, wants to, to just obsess about it and think about it and be maybe even be really angry about it, but not actually drop down into how are we feeling about it? How are we digesting this? You know, it keeps us at a certain level of engagement, but not, not fully into that heartbreak, just how fearful we can be of what all is going on and how sad it is, how upsetting it is. So we do a lot of different things. We, we all have our habits and ways of dealing with this. For some, it's just, I can't even tune in. I have no idea what's going on in the world. I, I get that. And yet here's this idea that maybe Maybe this is the purpose of our heart, that it's meant to break open over and over again. And that by doing that, it stretches, it expands, it heals. It never comes back the same. And we all know this. We actually all know this. The things that we go through, the most challenging parts of our lives, if we can look back now at the things that were most challenging, it, we weren't annihilated by them. You're here. Hopefully, you know, you grow. 
you learn something. It might still hurt and you might still have issues around it. But that capacity, you know that it grows. Suddenly, you know what it's like to suffer. You know how to be with other people who are going through similar experiences. You might even be better at holding their suffering than your own. But you can see just how that heart has expanded in some way. And it's messy. There's nothing uh, clean about this. It's all messy, but life is messy. So this ability for the heart to break open. When we can trust in that and not feel like we have to have it all together all the time. When we give ourselves permission to break apart in this way, what's the amount of healing that that can also bring to ourselves to trust the process of grief, to trust the process of being with discomfort? A lot of this practice brings us there. You know, when we say that we're in, on this path of awakening, what are we awakening to? What are we awakening from? You know, it's all this suffering. We're awakening to the suffering. We're understanding it. We're not pushing it away. There's no sidestepping any of it. As we become more wise and skilled in holding this internal experience, whatever it might be, and we, it translates, it carries over to how we can hold and be with that suffering or challenging experiences that are outside of ourselves and vice versa too. As we learn how to uh, be with the suffering in the world without that overwhelm, without losing ourselves in it. That strength and that ability, uh, we can bring it inward to those parts of ourselves that maybe we've been denying, that we haven't wanted to be with. We're in the practice of um, being with everything, excluding nothing. This is a radical practice. Kyoto Angel Williams, she puts it as love and justice are not, uh, whoops. Huh, I think I copied this down now. Uh, love and justice are not too different. They're not different. Without inner change, there can be new, no outer change. Without collective change, 
no change matters. Uh, love and justice are not two. Without inner change, there can be no outer change. Without collective change, there is no change. No change matters. We're at this point, I think, in our life. Uh, in this collective life, not just individual life, but as a collective, we're at this point where we actually can't turn around anymore. We can't turn away from what's here, externally or internally, that our survival collectively depends on it. We're actually seeing this happen all around the world what we've gained through COVID, what we're witnessing right now in Ukraine, as people are coming together, everybody, not just the military, but um, the citizens in Ukraine, dropping everything to fight for their country, to fight for their freedom. That collective, uh, really inspiring effort to do whatever they can to work together towards freedom. The different ways that over COVID we've seen people come together to uh, come together for justice, come together to save each other for health. And we've seen incredible division too. But there's something waking up. That division, it's, I think it's a byproduct to the other part of what's happening, the non-division, the coming together, this global awakening to that interconnectedness that each of us individually waking up, it's not just for ourselves, but for our planet, for all beings everywhere. People are realizing this without Buddhism, without any particular uh, spiritual religious path because it's necessary. We're at a place where we have to learn how do we stay present with the difficulties that are here? How do we stay in this open heart and not in this place of fear, not from this place of continually pushing each other away, but learning how do I fold this in? How do I fold it all in? and be here for it. Because it's from that place that we can respond, that we can actually start to transform our internal world and our external world. This meta practice, it's not just about being pleasant. It's not just about uh, wishing someone well. It starts there but it's pointing to something greater, something very powerful and collective, but also individual. This ability that we all have, we all have this ability. It's something we can all do to cultivate our minds and our hearts in this way, 
Okay, I think I'll end there. I hope this was helpful this evening. It was really nice to be with you all. I'm gonna dedicate the merit. Um, this is a long-standing tradition in Buddhism across the world of acknowledging this time that we've just spent together, that um, we come here for ourselves. Most of us, the vast majority come to this practice for ourselves. And it does benefit us, certainly. This is for our own personal uh, awakening. And yet, it's never just for ourselves. The benefits of our practice, it ripples out. It goes and affects our loved ones, the people we spend the most time with, our colleagues, our community. It goes out further than we can even understand, rippling out in all directions. That what we're putting into the world with our practice is really for the benefit of all beings everywhere. So may the benefits of our practice this evening, may it ripple out in all directions. May it be for all beings everywhere, excluding none. May all beings be happy and content. May all beings be safe from inner and outer harm. May all beings be healthy in mind and in body. May all beings be free. May we all be free. Okay, everyone. I hope you take care. Be well. Thank you for joining. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.